Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Today, a special day in Canada, the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. So we talk about that with a couple different guests. Dr. Eric Cam shares his recollections of being an undergrad student, among uh, other issues that we get to with him. It's a busy show. We want to get right into it. Toronto Today for Monday, December 6th starts now. So I get a text this morning from a listener. You can always text 289. Whether you've been to Saskatchewan or not, you can. 289 uh, Good morning. I'm just curious. Last I heard this new variant. Person wants to talk about the new variant. Okay. Um, the new variant wasn't really causing people to get very sick. Have you heard anything else about that? And I'm going to address some of that on the show today in a few different manners. Um, but But I wrote back, it could be a long-term real break. I think there's pain to come and confusion to come. And we're going to argue a little bit. Okay. Uh, we're going to get a little, little yelly. We're going to, as I like to say, Y E L L Y. We're going to get a little yelly about how we handle the next several weeks of the Omicron variant. And we're going to, we're going to find out a lot of truths about ourselves. We're going to find out a lot of perspectives about It's not just who wants this to keep going and who wants this to end, because you do know this now. You do know this. You know somebody. This isn't you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. You know somebody that is absolutely cool with things being like this right now, or even more locked down than this right now, than uh, over the next six months. You do know people that, that feel that way about it. The best way I can put it is this. If somebody was, if you hired, if we were invaded by aliens, it's always the analogy I like to use. Like picture like, you know, Bill Pullman and Independence Day. If we were invited, invaded by aliens, we, we'd need to, you know, create infrastructure and, and drama. And there would be heroes emerge and conversations emerge about who we should look at as heroes, heroes, heroes. And I'm not just talking about our healthcare workers. They were heroes before this. It's so, like, honestly, they're not fooled by this. They, they weren't fooled by the banging pots and pans. They weren't fooled by when the premier or prime minister gives them praise. They were like, hey, people, the system's kind of broken. COVID is exposing that the system was broken. But we knew it was broken before COVID is the point. So if, if you are to fight off the aliens, get rid of the aliens, and now there's no alien invasion anymore, um, some people kind of disappear back into the woodwork and they're not as prominent and when they're not as prominent there's a lack of understanding about what they what they do now in the public eye did you know had you you've heard the phrase top doctor i don't really like to use it did you know who canada's top doctor was before um february of 2020 did you know who ontario's was dr dave he was around since the Kathleen Wynn years. We've chatted with Kathleen Wynn about Dr. Dave uh, before, okay? And now it's Dr. Kieran Moore. But you know that now. The goal is to get to the point where normal people walk around the street and we don't know who these doctors are, that you don't know who Toronto's quote-unquote top doctor is. You do get that, that that's the goal. But they also get that that's the goal, okay? <laughs> they understand that also. And, uh, and I'm not saying that that messaging is coming from public health. But we played the transport minister earlier on um, in the in the show before six o'clock, who twice just vaguely tossed it out there. Well, we just sure don't want to go back to a lockdown, and it creates great question. It creates a, it creates a great question. What does a lockdown mean? 
And if we're going to play this game where we're testing fully vaccinated asymptomatic people all the time and we're going to call them cases the same as we would call a unvaccinated older person or an unvaccinated, you know, 52 year old person. 52 is not that old. Um, If we were to call those cases, but my if my son tests positive for covid and he's 15 and a half and he's fully vaccinated and you call that a case you do get that that's the, the one case has to be much more worrying than the other. And you've seen the the uh, the suggestion, and it even came from Dr. Anthony Fauci, that Omicron could, it could be more infectious and far less severe than Delta. Now, oh, don't be prematurely optimistic. People say that all the time. Don't. Well, why would we why would we be prematurely pessimistic? Why would we do that? Why would why wouldn't we look at what's happened in the last 10 days? Okay, this is clearly a highly mutated COVID-19 strain, but right now, right now, it's also producing considerably less severe infections. That's what they're telling us on the ground in South Africa. Does data not matter? Do the South African doctors, they don't matter? Do we just think the worst is on the way? And I got a couple examples of that later in the show. And again, I don't know how I don't want to call it irresponsible. People can think what they want to think. They can believe this will become something that they believe it will become. But I don't have to amplify it and you don't have to listen to it and you don't have to be afraid of it. Like and so there's no definitive conclusion right now. We just learned about this strain 12 days ago. We're also stuck in this sort of you know, weird ether about the travel bans. And Dr. Zane Chagla was also on the West Block on Global yesterday with Mercedes Stevenson. And he says, this is ridiculous. This is performative. This doesn't make sense science-wise. And Dr. Chagla's right. Way at the beginning of this in 2020, when we were thinking about travel bans, there was a, you know, the thought that a most of the people that had COVID-19 were symptomatic and they were shedding when they were symptomatic. We learned quickly that there is a large asymptomatic phase and, you know, much of the transmission is actually done by the time symptoms start. And so that really puts a lot of challenges into using particular travel bans because, you know, as long as certain people who are infectious get on your soil, even if they don't have symptoms, they may not, you know, they may start cascades of infection. We're hearing about community transmission in the United States. We're hearing about community transition, community transmission in Europe. And so, you know, again, you know, slapping certain countries with travel bans and not banning everyone uh, really doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it made no sense last Friday. It, ma- it makes no sense today. It absolutely doesn't. We want to believe that Omicron will cause less serious disease. We don't know it yet. We don't know it yet. And we could get a massive break. And I'm not telling you this will happen. I'm telling you this is we're due for a good bounce. Right. We're due for a good bounce of the proverbial football here when it comes to COVID-19. And if Omicron is basically, basically, uh, it's transmissible, but is also, you know, the equivalent of the common cold and especially to a vaccinated person. And I don't know that yet. And we don't know that. uh, What a break it is. Protect yourself by getting vaccinated. Yeah, do that. Yeah, consider whether the booster is the right thing for you as an adult as of right now. Maybe it's a timing issue because maybe you got your second shot just a couple months ago. Maybe that. We have to get start moving um, moving the, uh, again, proverbial football on rapid tests. We got to make them free or at least make them 
easily accessible. People would pay through them, in some cases through the nose, if they had them. But in Canada, it's not a thing. It really isn't. I know there's some parents that have some tests, and they test their kids, and they do this, and, and maybe there's someone immunocompromised in the family. Maybe they've got an older relative looking for them. Who knows? I mean, you've, you've, got, a good, you've got a good reason for doing anything that you do. I think I think there's I think it's evidence based. I think it would be uh, data based. You've seen what what's happening right now with Canada just getting um, you know pulled pillar to post. It's embarrassing. Okay, there's uh, there's a, a, a public health expert who's the deputy vice chancellor of a university in South Africa. He calls the Canadian travel ban on the African countries unbelievable. We're doubting. We're also doubting South Africa's tests. We're making, you knew, you know this, right? We're making Canadian travelers, Canadian citizens stranded in South, South Africa or Southern Africa, for that matter, go to another country to take a test. Why? I haven't heard a single explanation about that. Do you realize some Canadians have to stop in Ethiopia on the way home? Do you also realize there's a civil war going on in Ethiopia on the way home? Not great, Bob. Like, why is that happening? It was a massive deal 30 years ago. It should be a massive deal every year, and we should talk about it. And I'd like to think, you know, I I must have had just the best history teachers because I always found it was the history teachers in high school, and I kept taking history and stopped taking science and math. I don't know if you can tell that from the show, um, but I kept taking history to go then on to taking a poli-sci undergrad. But we'd always, you know, I, 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 we'd always talk about the big issues. We'd talk about the important stuff that happened in the world. And I know it's heavy. I know it is. Um, but how do you not? How do you not talk about one of the most horrific events um, and, and an anti-feminist, uh, a misogynistic mass shooting in Montreal that um, I, I would say has not been repeated on scale, but the lessons we learn from it are incredibly, incredibly important. Um, it's uh, it's everybody. Everybody remembers where they were, how they felt, how awful. And I wasn't a parent. I was a 17 year old kid in 12th grade. But uh, but it had a massive, massive impact on me. And I'll talk more about that at top of the hour. Um, I want to welcome on Paulette Senior, president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation for taking the time to talk with us today. Paulette, thanks very much for making the time for our listeners. Good morning, Greg. Thank you for actually featuring the story today. We appreciate that. Well, it, it had, um, you know, as a, as a teenager, it, it's funny, my first year on the campus at uh, Western, when we used to call it uh, University of Western Ontario, was the first commemoration of this event. And I went there with, um, to be honest, with, with a girl uh, I kind of liked, and we were in some classes together, and I kind of had a crush on, and she said, I'm going. And I'm like, well, I'll go too. And I'm glad that all of that circumstance happened because listening to um, people talk about it, it was a candlelight vigil. It was the first of, of any kind. And when you're an 18-year-old boy, um, that has that has a massive impact on you thinking. And then you get into university classrooms and thinking, well, it's the safest place you could feel. And for people not to feel safe in that environment, um, everything changed for us after 1989. Yeah, that is such a good point because it really is about where where are the places in our lives that we want to feel and know we should be the safest. And certainly that wasn't what happened that day. And, you know, I've been thinking back to 1989 um, and I, you know, I was a mere young woman at the time myself. And I've been also just remembering the 14 women that were murdered and the 10 women and four men uh, that were injured during the anti-feminist mass shooting and, and at, at L'Ecole Polytechnique. And, and, and they were all uh, engineering students at the time. 
we start to have more important conversations about misogyny as a whole or violence against women after after that happened? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. And and it really, um, it had, we, we had some sort of national uh, uh, recognition that, that this was an issue not just south of the border, but also certainly right here in Canada. And that was something that we had to reckon with. And so a number of things had to happen at the time in order to uh, to commemorate, but also to take real action in terms of moving forward on gender-based violence and what the issues were uh, that were affecting us right here in Canada. And so it, it was a time of commemoration, but also time of action. Paulette, Senior President and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. To, to, it, it's too bad it happens this way, um, but to enact change... Um, things take time and it takes, you know, barriers to be broken. It takes long time perspectives. When I think about even some of the debates we used to have um, that almost were politically charged in Canada anyway, because I'm sure you watched like me um, what was happening south of the border with the Supreme Court with Roe v. Wade. It's it's unthinkable. And we don't have to have, which is a good thing, those conversations on a on a on a tactical level here in Canada. We don't talk about, well, should, you know, two people of the same sex be able to marry anymore? We don't talk about should a woman have a right to choose when she's uh, pregnant? Um, we, we don't have those conversations anymore. I, I suppose we could say, well, we feel lucky that we're not in other countries, but it still takes work to move the ball forward on. It took a long time to get to the point where those weren't conversations and debates. Mm-hmm. It did. And, and, you know, even though we're not having it to the same level that is happening in the U S uh, I think we, we do have porous borders. And so we still have to be vigilant in protecting the rights that we do have. And when it comes to gender-based violence, whether it's in our schools or homes or on our streets, uh, you know, it's, it's really important that we know that this is preventable. It's absolutely possible to stop it. And we have to believe that, uh, that it is possible to prevent gender-based violence. It is possible to prevent what happened in 1989 and continues to happen, uh, not necessarily only on a mass level, but certainly every single day. Uh, we, we, have, we have women being killed by their intimate partners in this country. And so it's really important that we, that we focus on how we can keep people safe. And, you know, at the Canadian Women's Foundation, where, I, where I'm very fortunate to work, uh, we work tirelessly every day on preventing violence and, and, and doing um, everything we can to intervene and to prevent it. And I don't know, uh, Greg, if you heard about um, our signal for help, um, but we, we created this, this additional tool uh, to uh, try and, uh, you know, help folks um, be able to recognize when violence is happening, when someone doesn't feel safe. It's called a signal for help responder. And you use and your, and it's a, like, a, like a hand gesture, right? It is. It is. Yeah. It's a one-handed gesture that, we know it doesn't leave a digital signal, doesn't, you know, alert, uh, you know, your abuser that, that you've done something to signal that you need help. And so it's a one-handed gesture that you just put, put out, you hold up your, your five fingers, you tuck your thumb under, you fold your other four fingers over that, and it's just a signal to tell someone that you need help and you need for them to check in with you safely. Have you found, Paulette, that women have used this and used this to great effect and used this to, uh, you know, again, whether it's a video call or not, to uh, alert 
um, somebody that something isn't right because doing something else, shouting out or trying to, you know, run from a scenario may be more dangerous. We know that. Right, right. And yes, we have found that it's actually been used worldwide. Uh, we're, we're getting stories uh, pretty much every week uh, about folks using it in different circumstances based on, you know, what sort of uh, situations that they're in. And so the, the most um, uh, talked about was a few weeks ago in, in Kentucky where this 16-year-old girl that was, uh, that was uh, taken from, you know, from her, her family and, uh, uh, you know, she used the signal as well as other means to alert drivers that she needed help. And so she was, uh, she was actually rescued from, from uh, that abductor. So it's, it's, it's being used in different circumstances, certainly much wider than w- what we expected. Mm-hmm. But, you know, folks have to use it in a safe way to make sure that they're, in, that they're indicating that they need help. And the kind of help they need may be different depending on the circumstance. Paulette Senior is kind enough to join us on Toronto Today, president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Uh, if you are unaware, today is the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Um, and, of course, uh, it, it also was the start of the White Ribbon Campaign way back when. That brings me to something where we utilize ribbons and we utilize, you know, the orange T-shirt for uh, um, in, in missing Indigenous kids and missing and, and murdered Indigenous kids. And I worry sometimes, I wonder if you do too, that some of what, what I would describe as some of what we do too much of paulette is performative action we're we're worried about the look as opposed to the practicality what what would you tell a man like me who and what would you tell other male listeners what can we do so it's not just about the look what can we do so it's not just you know us attempting to look like we're making a difference what can we actually do well, you know, I, I'm, I'm always uh, supportive of allies um, who, who take on uh, these issues because it matters to them because they have people in their lives that they care about. And so, uh, you know, as we, as we think about today and how important it is, what kind of action do we all need to take? Well, we need to figure out, for example, how can we help those who signal that they need help? So, at the Cave Women Foundation, we're, we're encouraging folks to go to signalresponder.ca or text uh, 540-540 to find out what they can do to help someone that may need help. But also, you know, there are organizations like us and many others, hundreds of others across this country that are supporting those who need help now or who have to escape violence. So, you know, in the in a season of giving, we encourage you to give. We encourage you to you know, to, to look up organizations in your own mm. community that's doing a work. It could be a shelter or a gender-based violence organization. Give. It could be a white ribbon campaign or others that, you know, that we know about. So please give. It's really important because mm. we depend on donations like yours in order to continue keeping folks safe in our communities. Paulette Sr. is president CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Uh, it's an important day. It resonates with so many of us who remember uh, 1989, honestly, like it was yesterday. Uh, and uh, and we're proud it enacted changes, but we don't forget the impact. We don't forget the 14 victims. We don't forget how it made us feel and, and how uh, the, just the hole in the pit of our stomach for weeks and months on end. And and every, I think every every December 6th, we feel it uh, again. And, and to be honest, it's worth remembering because that's that's what helps you keep pushing for change. Thank you for the time today. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Paul at Senior, I guess. By the way, uh, Paul Workman covered this story, um, the uh, the Ecole Polytechnic shootings for uh, CBC. He put a, a lot of this stuff is on YouTube, and I was going through some of it yesterday. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui, our producer, found this clip. This documents how just how much, again, pre-internet, how much chaos, disorder, confusion there was in in not just the coverage of this. And that's not the media's fault, just what the cops knew, what anybody in Montreal knew at the given time. Police were confused about the details. At first, they thought there was more than one person involved, but later said the man had no accomplices. He acted alone. Apparently, the gunman walked into a full classroom, about 60 people. He had a 22 caliber rifle. Some witnesses say he separated the men from the women, sent the men outside, and then started shooting. Police say after doing that, he moved into the hallways and started shooting again. The victims were found on three different floors. Yeah, um, I remember it happened on a Thursday. I'll tell more about the story on a Friday, but I think a really important question to ask is whether we this set us on the right path. And can we take solace, pride, um, emphasis on how we properly reacted to uh, this terrible tragedy and made sure it didn't happen again? Because honestly, honestly, for the most part, 32 years later, there's been nothing as horrific in Canada take place. There is the potential for a new anti-racism bill uh, for schools. And uh, we want to bring on the uh, NDP MPP who introduced this bill on Thursday. That it's not just at the high school level, but in the uh, elementary ranks as well. Kitchener Center NDP MPP Laura May Lindo uh, joins us on Toronto Today. It's great to talk to you again and have you on again. Thanks for making the time for me. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, what uh, what was the main impetus for this? How long had this been, you know, evolving in your own mind uh, as something that could be not just practical for some schools, but practical for all schools? Well, this has been uh, a labor of love, I think I would say. Community members have been fighting, uh, trying to have their experiences of racism recognized, uh, especially when they're trying to figure out ways to address the harm that a lot of students are experiencing. Before I was elected, I used to work in post-secondary. Um, I used to teach in teacher education. I used to teach the anti-racism courses. And they always came at the end of um, the, the students' two years in the program, and which also meant that they would go into their classrooms and do their practicum experiences sort of uh, leading up to becoming certified. And they never had an opportunity to try out any of the, the tools that we were providing them with. So by the time I was elected and I was hearing about um, examples of racism in Peel, examples of racism in York Region, in my own area, and Waterloo uh, Region District School Board in in Toronto, um, I decided, look, let's take all of the information that we have and try and get the tools to the educators and to the families so we can address the systemic realities of racism. Um, So when when a lot of people have been asking me the why, um, part of it is just, uh, the evolution of advocacy in education to make sure that racialized kids are, are okay and safe. So what happens and, and at what age, um, uh, Laura May, does, does this get introduced? Are we, are we introducing the concept of racism uh, really early days in elementary school? Are we taking you know, new grade nines to high school in a, in a different environment and educating them early days? You, 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 I get the sense you want to do this more early in a high school environment than, than you do later, because I agree with you. What's the point at the end of that four-year experience in introducing things that are really important for all, all four of those years? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm going to take it a step back. 
So part of the bill is to make amendments to the Education Act, which covers kindergarten to grade 12, but also post-secondary and teacher education. Um, The idea behind the bill is to introduce the concepts and the tools that are needed to address racism for teachers so that when they graduate and they go into the classroom, if they experience something or witness um, racism in the classroom, they know how to intervene. So I'm, all, I'm often told by teachers um, that they freeze. So something happens, um, you know, somebody says something that's anti-Semitic and they just freeze. They don't know what to do. And they don't get those tools in teachers' college. So that part of, you know, making sure that those things are centered is important. But we were also hearing that there were issues at the board level. So um, in Peel, that was a major story where within the school board, um, you know, trustees were experiencing racism, didn't know how to address it when parents were coming and talking to them about it. They were shutting down conversations instead of trying to figure out what to do to provide support to families. So they, too, need to have these kinds of tools. If the teachers and the leaders have the tools that are necessary to both recognize racism and address it, then the the students in the classroom from kindergarten to grade 12 and also in post-secondary will naturally be given the support that they need. So it's not about having conversations about racism with a kindergarten kid, but it's about being able to intervene if something happens that could be deemed racist. Laura May Lindo is joining us, NDP MPP. Um, uh, it, it documents that it would set out penalties for those who disrupt school or class by using racist language or engaging in racist activities. Would you be hopeful that there would be something arbitrary across the board that was the case in all circumstances? Or does it, does, the, the, I asked, does every every case have its own uniqueness, right? And, oh. in, and, and that's that's a struggle with, with putting arbitrary, um, you know, set penalties and set, you know, a suspension, um, some sort of, um, you know, uh, community duty, anything like that. That's difficult. You almost got to judge it on, on a case by case basis. Well, like anything in the school system, you've got to be able to take some time and figure out what was the context? Was it intentional? What were they like? What was what were they trying to have happen? But when you have situations like um, in Toronto, when you've got a teacher that comes to a Halloween uh, event mm-hmm. in blackface, and nobody says anything, and the te- the students are the ones who raise an issue. That's right. That is intentional. And so there has to be some form of a penalty. Um, and so part of what the goal is, is to take racism and these experiences as seriously as we do, for instance, um, sexual assault and sexual harassment prevention. You know, under the Liberal government, we opened up the Education Act and put in language to take sexual uh, assault prevention seriously, and that changed our health curriculum. But when it comes to racism, we have 300 pages in an education act, and the word racist or racism doesn't even appear. And so it makes it really hard for somebody to say, look, that teacher coming in in blackface is, is harmful, it's racist, if nobody knows what it is that we're talking about. So the penalty comes with the intentionality. The idea of giving people tools to be able to recognize it should, in my opinion, decrease the amount of people that would do things that would be deemed racist because we'd have more clarity about what that is and provide them with tools to be able to learn and grow and Mm -hmm. keep students and other staff member safe. Uh, it's Kitchener Center uh, MPP Laura May Lindo joining us on Toronto today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm glad you brought up that teacher because I think what I've heard from most parents, not even necessarily with kids in the Toronto District School Board, was the TDSB just put out a release when it, when it happened a couple weeks ago that said the, the person, the teacher 
who wore blackface is, quote, no longer employed. But I think there's great concern that that teacher could be employed by another board. And this is some people's struggles with yeah. uh, with the teacher unions is they just take a problem of any sort, whether it be, you know, inappropriate language, poor standards, an inappropriate relationship with a student, heaven forbid. And that teacher just get it. Even if it can't be. um if it can't be addressed in a criminal sense, that teacher just gets moved to another board and becomes somebody else's problem. We don't want to yeah. see that with examples of racism. We can't have that. No, and we see that often. So you'll hear stories of, you know, a principal does something in one school, they get fired, and then they appear somewhere else. Right. If a teacher does something in one school, they get fired, they appear somewhere else. And that history isn't documented, which is another part of the bill, is to start to collect real data on what is happening in the schools. So we've got a lot of, um, of data about what happens with students. We don't have very much uh, information collected about what happens to teachers when they are, in fact, um, when, it de- when somebody determines that what they've done is racist. We don't have that data. We don't have a sense of what happens to them. And on top of it, I think the most important thing for me is to center the kids. Like the kids in that class and the kids in that school um, are experiencing something that needs more than just, okay, the teacher is gone. Like, has anybody talked to the kids to make sure that they're okay? Were there other things that happened before we got to a teacher walking in in blackface? My guess is that there likely were. There were likely a lot of... There's steps along the way, aren't there? Oh, yeah. And we have to start picking those up and recognize them as racist so that we can deal with them properly. You had a before you go, you had a shocking scenario in your area at Alpine Public School where right now uh, there's a um, a female teacher who's 52. She's facing two counts of assault and she's accused. It's alleged she's she taped two kids with masking tape uh, well in the classroom uh, to their chairs. Um, This is described by one of the parents. One of the parents believes uh, this had race as a, a motivator or at least a factor. Um, it, it is, is the school board, are, are the school union and the school board, they, they simply have to wait until the courts take care of this? Like, she does deserve due process, but the, the schools and the unions haven't weighed in on what should happen. But obviously, many parents will say, well, even if she doesn't get convicted, we sure don't want her teaching again. Well, definitely. And so at this point, there, there are the criminal charges that are dealing with, um, I think they've deemed it child abuse. Um, but on the board side, that investigation can't happen until the criminal courts are, are complete, their investigation. That said, um, both of the kids were young, like five or six yeah. years old, um, racialized kids. And um, there are questions as to whether or not any racialized kids now feel safe. There's a whole body of research that says uh, racialized kids are disciplined more harshly than their white peers. And so a lot of people are thinking, okay, there is something that is not correct Mm -hmm. with what has happened. Um, And it's 2021 for us to be experiencing something like that. Like what happened along the way to have something Mm -hmm. that major arise? And we can't have her just reappear in another board without there being some kind of explanation as to what went on. But the biggest, biggest issue is that racism is not understood by everybody. And so even in the criminal investigation, I'm being told locally that um, the police don't feel that they have enough to necessarily deem it um, like a hate crime or linked to race. But if you don't know what to look for, then you will never make that determination. And so it goes back to the need to have these tools in place to make sure that people can, in fact, 
recognize these experiences. I'm now getting phone calls um, and emails from local parents who are telling me about the kinds of experiences that their racialized kids have had in school and asking, like feeling that they see themselves in this bill. That's right. And I was talking about those steps. And so there's a lot of work to do, but the tools are here. And I'm hoping that the government will support us in passing this bill. It's hard to see how they how they couldn't or wouldn't. But let's stay in touch on it. And I, I thank you for, for coming sure. on and uh, and uh, emphasizing the need for this uh, with our listeners today. Thanks for the time. Thank you. You bet. Laura May Lindo, MPP for Kitchener Center. Let me give you a quick update on uh, Omicron, if you will. So I watched some of the coverage yesterday. I like to watch Sundays. Great. In the morning, I go and I play tennis, make an idiot of myself. Although I played really well yesterday. My game's coming along. You should have seen me. Um, I lost, but I, I was good. Um, and then I like to come home and I watch some of the sun. I watch a little soccer. I would watch a little, little of the footy. And then I watch most of the Sunday morning shows from the United States. And I watch the West Block, which you just heard a clip of with uh, Dr. Zane Chagla on last hour. But I see Dr. Fauci on uh, CNN on Sunday. That's Anthony Fauci. Everybody knows who that is. And um, here's his quote on Omicron. And I agree with this quote. I was kind of critical of Dr. Fauci last Monday. Because he got on Sunday and he was like, I am science. And if you disagree with me, he was like the guy in the Thomas Dolby uh, song. He was just like science. And I'm, if you disagree with me, you're anti-science. I'm like, well, no, there's many brilliant doctors, um, infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists that um, d- differ about a lot about the uh, the COVID-19 struggle. And by the way, um, many a many a doctor is not qualified to talk about economic impact, mental health impact, socialization impact, all that stuff. Um, Fauci's quote, I think it's bang on though this week. So again, I'll say when somebody gets it right and when they don't. Um, though it's too early to really make any definitive statements about it thus far, it meaning Omicron does not look like there's a great degree of severity to it, and that's good. Now we got to wait, and we got to. <laughs> It takes time to draw firm conclusions. We went through this with every other variant we've had so far, and it's going to take a couple more weeks to draw firm conclusions about the severity of Omicron cases. It is. Um, Here's what South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says. Our hospital admissions, quote, are not increasing at an alarming rate, meaning that whilst people may be testing positive, they are not in large numbers being admitted into hospitals. We should not panic. Fantastic. We might get a real break here. We might. It, it, I think it'll come with some short-term suffering for our healthcare system. I got it. Researchers sequenced Omicron, found a part of its genetic code, not in the other variants, by the way, is also present in the common cold. Does that mean it's as harmful or harmless as the common cold? Not yet, but it's got potential to be that way. And if you knew that Omicron was the common cold, and someone was fully vaccinated with no symptoms and tested positive for it, w- would you send him home from work? Would you send Would you send a 15-year-old fully vaccinated high school student home if he tested positive for a, a sniffles? You wouldn't. Now, I don't think we're there yet, but that's somewhere we could go. It really is. Um, the World Health Organization has pointed out no one has died yet. No one has died yet. But but, but Brady, there's more, there's death. Yeah, but we shouldn't be just looking at death. Yeah, I know. I tell you that all the time when I talk about kids in school. Okay. I tell you about everything kids are suffering with these adverse consequences of closing schools, high economic costs, high social costs, um, it, the, the interrupted learning, the poor nutrition, the stressful home environment, the stress for teachers, the gaps in childcare. Where the hell do I start? 
I think we might have made a big, big mistake last spring, to be perfectly honest. Let me bring on Dr. Eric Kam, uh, economics professor from Ryerson University. It's great to have you on. What's going down with you? Uh, nothing much. Just basking in the glow of my five-in-a-row winning Miami Dolphins. That's about it. They might be a good team, after all. They might be a good team in a soft um, middle, under, not an underbelly, a middle belly of the AFC. They might, they well, might make life interesting later this month. You know what? The problem is, and it, this is the frustrating part, is I watched the game with my father yesterday. You go, they win five in a row, but then they're still just six and seven. So even winning five in a row, which is quite incredible, puts them, well, I mean, where? I'm not really in a playoff spot, not really in a top draft pick. So there we are again in the mushy middle. And they don't have the first round draft pick, right? They don't they have one first round draft pick. They gave the other one to Philadelphia. That's right. But but they Philadelphia gets theirs uh, and Miami gets Philadelphia. So, you know, the idea that they were crappy, I almost said something else early on, would have benefited the Eagles, not them. Not them. No, that's right. That's right. So, and listen, you never want to see your team lose unless it's the end of the season and it is a draft pick situation. But I just want to see them finish strong. And mostly, as you talked about, I want to know going forward, is Tua our quarterback for the future? That's really the question for this year, and that's more important than their overall record. Well said, Dolphins fan. Um, listen, I, I saw this on Monday, and you know how I love to. Uh, I, I don't like media on media crime. Some of it is just salacious, speculative, and gossipy. I don't love that stuff. Okay, sometimes I do, but not in this case. Here's what I saw, and and I'm not going to say where I read this, but here's what I saw. Many Here's the quote. Many students at universities across the GTA are calling on schools to provide more on learn, online learning options for the winter semester. And I thought about that, and I'm like, huh, many, huh? Okay, there's two students quoted. One is an international student coming from uh, Asia uh, who doesn't want to come to Toronto to attend school for four months. Yeah, we should provide international students who don't think they should come uh, to Toronto. Yeah, give them that option, 100%. Would you take issue with the many students are calling on schools to provide more online learning options? It's just the opposite. Well, I can tell you, I can't speak for all students, but I can speak for the 2,000 that I just finished teaching last week, and I haven't heard one of those 2,000 say, I wish I could do more at-home or Zoom learning. The students are tired of it. They feel like they're not getting their money's worth in university, and they want to go back to live lectures. For many of them, they've never seen a live lecture, and they start asking why the tuition isn't going down when the experience is in the toilet. So, uh, no, maybe they found the one or two students that enjoy learning in their pajamas, but I can tell you in my first and second year students, they on mass want to go back and they want to go back right away. And they're all imagine students in residence right now. I've, I hear from so many parents who've got kids in residence and my God, the uh, the the experience, the sheer uh, lunacy of being in residence away from home, you know, congregating, gathering, having people over to watch Monday night football, movies, Netflix, whatever, uh, ordering food in. And yet. Four of their five classes, Dr. Cam, might be on Zoom for for that week. It's nuts. No, it's atrocious. It's no way to be in university. I could argue it isn't in university. And in my very small and shrinking social group, uh, the two or three kids that are in first year that were in residence have actually come home. They said to hell with this. They came home and they said, if I'm going to sit in a residence room, I can sit in my bedroom at home and learn. So the whole thing, you know, we did, you talk about doing no favors last year. I don't want to say that university students were adversely affected, but I kind of think they were in that they've lost so much in terms of not just learning, but the experience of going to university. We both know that it's a lot more than just going to lectures. 
And I don't know what they have left. I mean, they're sitting in their bedrooms watching a Zoom lecture. And you ask yourself, how is this any different than going to high school? And the answer is it's not. Then what the heck are they paying for? And it is time to go back to school and to work and, and, and find some off-ramp for this ridiculousness. So you teach economics. So do, are you putting up slides and charts and graphs? And, and w- would you have them even watch um, a, a video that you could show them in person, but on, on Zoom? I, I have no idea how. I got. I had roommates in uh, university take, be taking chemistry. How on earth is chemistry or biology done uh, over a television screen? Well, I have the luxury of not requiring labs for my course. If you teach chemistry or physics, I have absolutely no idea what you do. Now, thanks to the generosity of my dean, I've basically turned my home office into a broadcasting studio. You may remember a certain uh, Greg Brady helped me pick out a microphone. I know the good, I have, I know the good microphones. Yeah, and Give I have that. monitors set up so my students can see me, I can see them. And I put up PowerPoint slides, which thanks to the magic of Apple, I can actually write on my PowerPoint slides and they can see what I'm writing. So, you know, I think I've done well. I know many, most of my colleagues have done well. There were people that said, I don't like technology. I'm not using technology that all of a sudden pivoted and said, well, I, I better do this because I've got to give my students an experience hmm. that, that's, that's no worse. So we're doing our best. We're trying our best. And you know what, Greg, the good news is, is some of the lessons we've learned, like for me, I record every lecture and then put it on the internet. I will never stop doing that because it helps the mm. students that for whatever reason can't come to lecture. But come on, there is no experience like being in a lecture hall. You were very thoughtful to, um, I don't think you were kissing up. I don't care what the listeners say. You were very thoughtful to both Tim Cook, uh, the CEO of Apple and your dean. So you're saying the right things to the right people. Of the two, I really, really love my dean. I just want to put that out there for everybody to hear. She's Sounded like you love Tim Cook equally. Um, I don't get very many free things from <laughs> Tim Cook, but I sure get a lot of presents from my dean. And you know what? And a lot of deans and a lot of provosts have said, whatever you need to help the students, just ask. You were, uh, as I mentioned it earlier, uh, when we were looking to get to you earlier, um, I, I was not a university student yet, but I attended, and I'll talk more about it at 8 o'clock, the first commemoration of the Montreal Massacre when I was a Western uh, freshman, if you will, uh, to use the uh, American term. Um, but you're, you're an undergrad while the Montreal Massacre happens. What are your remembrances of it? Oh, it was horrible. I was a third-year undergrad. And what it was, was the uh, it was the end of the 80s disasters. The first one was John Lennon assassinated. That brought the Beatles into center stage. Then it was Rock Hudson dying in 1985, and we all learned about this thing called AIDS and made us socially aware. But the, but the Montreal Massacre, I mean, it was, it was on our home turf, and 14 young women were, were killed just for being young women and studying engineering. And it really was, it, it was a watershed moment for us in university. I don't think we ever again took for granted the fact that we felt free and safe on our university campus. Uh, and you started to look around and you started to kind of look in lecture and think, is there anybody here who looks a little bit suspicious? I mean, it, in a sense, it, it ended the innocence. But more than that, it just took so much out of the wind out of your sails when you're in university and you think this is a safe space. What can happen to you on a campus more than, you know, drinking a little bit too much and being late for class? It made a lot of us uh, scared. And it made a lot of us realize that disasters can happen in Canada on a university campus. And we always thought those were sacrosanct. It's, it's interesting, too, in that I think we wondered how to characterize it. And we had a pre-internet world, and, uh, and I think we had a less polarized world, period. 
but there was great debate at the time. Um, and and I know Barbara Frum did this uh, on uh, CBC at the time. She didn't want the massacre seen as a you know a violence against wom- women attack or an anti-feminist attack. But I, uh, with great deference to the late Barbara Frum, I would push back and say. Hopefully that got us all a little more vocal about about defending women, defending women's rights, increasing their advocacy, to be perfectly honest. I don't think it diminishes the tragedy to call it what it was. Well, I mean, God bless the memory of Barbara Frum. I used to enjoy her on the CBC. But, you know, sometimes you just have to look at the percentages. 14 out of 14 people killed were women. Yeah. So I actually do believe it was violence against women. And I can tell you another thing that happened, which I guess if there's a silver lining, Uh, And I use that term loosely, but many of us, and I'll throw me in there because I'm not perfect, there were many jokes told on campuses where women were, in a sense, the butt of the joke. And I can tell you that on December the 6th, 1989, from this undergrad, that never happened again. You never took for granted that that could have been your mom, your sister, or your grandmother, or your aunt. And it never, ever came out of my mouth. And many of my friends also, frankly, never saw women in the same way, and in a sense, um, tried to protect them even more. But to say it wasn't a, a female crime or a feminist crime or a or a uh, violence against women crime, mm. frankly, I just don't see it. I don't see it either. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for the time, man. We'll talk really soon. Stay healthy, Greg. Our uh, producer extraordinaire, uh, Sheba Siddiqui, joins me now. Okay, did we? I fell asleep during succession last night, so I can't talk about the last 15 to 17 minutes. I don't know when I fell. Nobody ever knows when they really fall asleep. I guess your Fitbit could tell you. I have a confession to make. Let's My hear name it. is Sheba Siddiqui, and I, I haven't watched Succession in a few weeks. Okay, you're a bit behind. I'm not going to... Okay, that's all right. There was nothing... I, I, I don't this think... Is, this was my show, though. This was my show. This is uh, through the entire pandemic. I was waiting for this season. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I wanted this as my distraction, and I started it, and I just... it's the most boring season ever so what did i do last night i watched yellowstone yeah i was gonna go uh the john dutton fever uh, set in again and uh and and yellowstone was on i don't know i'm calling the show westworld around the house i've done that by accident three times (laughs) and that was an hbo show a few years ago but like weird robots and and that was a good show it was it it held me for a while um with anthony hopkins right and a couple other dudes that i i don't i don't know the names of it helped me for yeah about ai exactly Exactly. But um, it's interesting. Okay, so we don't have to get into the plot aspect of it. Um, I saw this story, though, about Jeremy Strong, and I worry sometimes. So Jeremy Strong plays uh, Kendall. Kendall Roy. Right. Yes. And uh, he's, in a, he's in an article in The New Yorker, and I just kind of pawed through it. So it's okay if you, you and I haven't read it in depth. But, but my takeaway right away was I don't love actors who are just like, have no sense of humor about what they like daniel day lewis feels like that to me he's not light he's not fluffy he just but he's he a great actor he's a great actor but you're only going to see him in like he takes his work super seriously and you should we take our job seriously but there's also a lighter self-deprecating like side to them and I, I worry now now that i know that the actor of kendall roy is a little more day lewis-esque i'm like oh come on like do you ever like? Can you lighten up? Can you be okay with? Because 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 uh, he just strikes me as that, just super super serious. Like he gets so, into this method acting thing. I read yes, I read this article as well, and I do feel that the actor that plays Kendall Roy it takes himself very seriously. But I, maybe he's just identifying with his character because Kendall Roy is like one big fat loser, right? Are, I mean are, he he takes himself extremely seriously. He wants the crown, and he has no idea how to go about getting it. 
without getting into the show the last few weeks because you have you've uh, you, you're taking I'm not a, caught up. You're taking a break. You you and you and Succession are on a break right now. Yes, like we Ross are. and Ross and Rachel on Friends for like seven of the eleven <laughs> seasons or whatever. But um, like, is it is he meant to be a character the audience has sympathy for? Is he the most likable character? All with oh, all his foibles. No, who dude, is? He's the most. Oh. Roman! No, that's not the right answer. Why? Roman's the biggest jerk on the show. I love Roman. But but he's making you laugh, but he's he'd be a despicable brother or brother-in-law or nephew. Out loud. No. But he's just a spoiled brat. That's what Roman he's got. He no one's ever his he, no one's ever said no to him. That's how he goes through life. Which would you I would imagine with a billion dollar family. <laughs> think about the billion dollar famous families we know. You can see how the children have turned out. But I think I, Roman makes me laugh out loud. But his you, lines. But who would you like better as a brother, as a biological brother? You, there's oh only God. one answer. It's Kendall. No, Kendall's such a loser. It's a good, oh. He's got the best business sense. Um, he's got better fashion sense than, except for that a couple of satin satiny jackets. I think they're he's equal worn. playing field. So no, I'd have to disagree with you. I um, now this is interesting. Also, uh, Kieran Culkin was interviewed for this piece in the New Yorker on Jeremy Strong. And here's his quote. After the first season, he, meaning Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall, said something to me like, I'm worried that people might think the show is a comedy. And I said, Kieran Culkin, I think the show is a comedy. He thought I was kidding. Is it a comedy? Is Succession a comedy? I can see how he would say that, yes. I find Succession, some parts of it hilarious. Some characters are really funny. And that's what keeps me coming back and liking them. See, unlike your show Yellowstone, where you only laugh when people are getting the crap beat out of each other. Like when Rick oh, I just can't starts... watch that. I have to turn away from that. The, the violence in Yellowstone, I don't like. Whereas my husband, his eyes are glued to the screen. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I just can't watch the violence. That it, part. It's, no. it's difficult to add the long mullet-haired uh, um, uh, son of uh, John Dutton Casey has probably killed 300 people over the span of three seasons, all with machine guns, I feel like. And just walks away from it. That's what I look at. I'm like, <laughs> what happens in Montana? Can you just kill someone and walk away? But the best part is he's a livestock commissioner. And as I've said, I grew up in sort of rural outside of London, Ontario. And I'm like, are the livestock commissioner gigs that interesting anywhere else except rural Montana? <laughs> do they have, do they walk around, do they walk to their office in bulletproof vests? I'm going to guess no. Like, what's the worst thing? Hey, guess, you know, a couple sheep got out. You got to go, you, you need to drive over and, and get help get the sheep, help uh, help Fred the farmer get the sheep back in. And that well, would be it. That's your day. Again, again, another billionaire's son right there. So the entitlement with him True. as well. Go around killing anybody he wants. Something to be said about billionaire children. It's true. I guess we like billionaires. Um, this got brought to my attention over the weekend. So you tell me what you think of this. I'm not, and you know, this is a ju- you know, the whole show's a judgment free zone. I mean, I think I'm 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 uh, I'm echoing that, right? <laughs> Always. <laughs> not a very judgy show at the end of the day. But no. someone sent this to me, and and someone sent this to me by the way, who's fully vaccinated, who's on board. He'll, he, you know, we all comply, we all do this, we all do that. We'll all keep doing it for a little while. But anti-vaxxer, the definition in on Webster's website, sometimes I'm like, I can't think of a word, so I'll go there for a synonym or something like that. Definition of anti-vaxxer, and I want to know how this lands with you, and our audience can play along as well. A person who opposes the use of vaccines, but there's more, a person who opposes the use of vaccines or regulations mandating vaccination. And I, That's extreme. Yeah, the second that's not an anti-vaxxer if yeah, you are against a, a vaccine mandate. What's no, wrong with Webster? So who's, who's this Webster person that 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 that's gets come on, Webster? That's not right. 
Anti-vaxxer is a word that I've used more in the last six months than I've ever used in my whole life. And this is a, there's a fine line here because I do know some anti-vaxxers personally in my life, but I also know some people who just oppose the mandates and, and some of them are not, they're not vaccinated. They're on, I think because of the mandates, they're getting closer and closer to thinking about getting vaccinated. Um, and a lot of people just don't want to do it for health reasons and, I mean, uh, you know, their idea of, of what we're in- injecting into our bodies, but I, an anti-vaxxer is a very extreme uh, definition of someone who doesn't believe in the vaccines, but the mandates, I'm opposed to the mandates. <laughs> and, so, and, I'm you're not, and you're not an anti-vaxxer. No, That's very I'm fully unfair. Vac- yeah, I'm fully vaccinated, and I don't think our government should be telling us what to put inside our bodies. I don't think, I sure, that my my line in the sand was mandating it for 5 to 11-year-olds. I, I can't, I can't yes. do, and I, I hope it's added to the list someday of, yes, the other vaccines for polio and MMR and chicken pox and, and, uh, th- that we all do take, but you can't put that on to parents in the middle of a school year mm-hmm. after the school year they had last year i'm all for it for my 13 year old wants to play soccer has to go into another building of course that's a voluntary but school's not voluntary and we lost we lost our we lost our crap on this we've lost the plot on the idea that well school is a, is a nice option no school is like that's a right that should be a right to walk into a school and attend that school and do it in a manner in which that family deems that your kid should attend it and that's not so anti this is a really bad definition and it makes me, I never want to believe in tinfoil hat type stuff, but I'm like, why is that there? That's not it's, true. It's inaccurate. I do think it's inaccurate. And mandating for children, that's just terrifying to me. That's terrifying to me because, yes, we know that this vaccine prevents us from extreme symptoms of COVID-19. It doesn't protect us from getting it. doesn't protect us from transmitting it. But the extreme symptoms, sure. But we don't know the long-term effects. And for me, I'm gambling personally on on getting the vaccine and the long-term effects of it. I'm really nervous about that with my kids. Yeah. But uh, but the vast, the vast, vast, vast majority of doctors, why would the, all these doctors want to be wrong, right? Why would they want to be wrong? Okay. I'm going to just say something controversial. <laughs> the ones, the doctors who come forward and are opposed to it or say something against what the, what the, you know, the popular doctors are saying, yeah. they just get annihilated. They do. That's they right. Do. So they're becoming quieter and quieter. And that's why we're hearing from our main doctors who are saying the things that we feel comfortable with them saying. You and I personally feel comfortable with them saying. Uh, but the people, the doctors who come out and say things against it just get massacred. I guess that's true, but I see all these people, and a lot of them are, are idiot, um, uh, toxic male, w- white right wing talk show hosts, and like one of them dies every week. One of them dies every week. It feels like, <laughs> and I'm trying to find somebody who had the vaccine who was. I can't wait to get the vaccine, and those people don't die. So I feel like we're safer with it than without it. But I, oh, you feel like that too. I agree too. with you though. I all do right. feel that. I, I know you do. That. I'm just clarifying it. But for those our doctors audience. who do challenge certain other doctors, they they're. They get massacred. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I, I, uh, you know, we're coming, I want to do it later in the week, but I'll bring it up today that, that we're, it's about the one year anniversary where people brought up that great Barrington declaration. Do you remember when that happened? And that was, no. a okay. There was a big like b- thing that all the doctors agreed on and said, let's, that, let's get this out there post vaccination. Um, it, 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 the, some of the principles in the great Barrington declaration make some sense, but pre-vaccination, it was like. It was like a game of who who wants to who's going to die and who's going to live. It was like mm-hmm. a ridiculous game, but that made way more sense than COVID zero. <laughs> okay, yes, it's not like Coke zero is more popular than COVID zero now. <laughs> I love that stuff. I don't know what they put in it. Magic, whatever's in there, it's magic.
Appreciate you listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for finding us. Please feel free to share and please feel free to subscribe and feel free to rate us as well. Tell us what you want to hear more of on the show and what we can do better to make your experience listening a pleasurable one. Stay safe and we'll tune in tomorrow with you with a live show, 5.30 to 9 a.m. on Tuesday. Thanks again.